Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog. Welcome to the Neil Garfield Show, a presentation sponsored by the Living Lies Blog, GTC Honors, LendingLies.com, and The Garfield Firm. Servicing all 50 states and 24 countries with news and analysis about the largest economic crime in human history. This program is for general information only and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice or consultation with a licensed professional. This show is not intended as a solicitation for the engagement of any services. And now sitting in for Neil this week, it's your host, Charles Marshall. Hello, everyone, and podcast virtual radio land. Here we are, November 19th. 2020, and the election is being contested, so that is ongoing with all kinds of implications for what we discuss on this show. Uh, We won't be discussing the election today. We will be discussing a lot of other very relevant topics that should be addressed, particularly with 2021 upcoming. And I will tell listeners that next Thursday being Thanksgiving, we will continue the show past Thanksgiving, of course, so that the next show after today will be held the Thursday after Thanksgiving. And that will be December 3rd when Neil will be back. So I'm happy to, as always, embrace and uh, have with me today Bill Padalo. Welcome, Bill. Hi, Charles. How are you? I'm doing very well, actually. So, And it's always good to host this show. It's always good to present the information that we're able to present to our listeners. And we have a tax avoidance scheme that Bill is going to be Discussing shortly. Remember, in the uh, tax avoiders will always remind you of this. Tax avoidance is legal. It is a legal thing. That's true. Tax evasion is illegal. The difference between tax avoidance and tax evasion is to be found in certain legal codes, and it is absolutely a matter of legal jurisprudence which is not necessarily connected to legal or moral reality. (laughs) Nevertheless, we live in the world we live in, and Bill will be getting into some of the nuts and bolts and looking ahead with some of that as well. And then after Bill's discussion of of how conveniently uh, certain securitized trusts, in quotes, both claim and then disclaim being a securitized trust, depending on what legal form they're in. Well, Bill's going to get into all of that. And then I will be addressing the latest COVID stuff uh, and the fact that the foreclosure moratorium is coming to an end. The so-called CARE Act connected with uh, the COVID-19 situation 
the moratorium related to that is coming to an end on December 31st. Uh, it appears at this time highly unlikely that Congress is going to do anything about that. So that's where things stand. And, uh, Bill, why don't you go ahead and uh, present your information, which I think, as always, the listeners will be able to appreciate. Okay. Well, thank you. Thanks very much, Charles. I, uh, you know, a hat tip to, you know, a lot of followers and uh, people who send me information on a daily basis. I really appreciate that because um, I, I may not get back to everybody who sends me information or tips or whatnot all the time, but it doesn't mean that I um, I don't take the time to look at what you're sending and, and, um, uh, and, and so that I can comment on it or it becomes useful in some way. And this one is actually came from a, a, a source about a month ago who uh, was investigating a, a trust entity called a Prime Star H1 Fund, H1 Fund Trust, and uh, happened to locate um, a, what's called a seller's residency certification. It's a tax document that's uh, required to be recorded in the state of New Jersey any time a party sells real estate. Um, and a lot of these entities and so-called trusts or whatnot, once they foreclose, um, they'll uh, get that judgment and foreclose at a for, uh, sheriff's sale or eventually um, take back the property and sell it as an REO. And so anyhow, uh, they sent me this document that was pretty interesting, and, and it, it named at the very top of the document that's the seller of the real estate, and then it lists the dollar amount for the consideration of the sale. And uh, the, the Prime Star H1 Fund Trust uh, has has to declare in its what's called the seller's assurances. And I, uh, if you want to take a look at one of these documents, looks like I did post something on this uh, a few weeks back at my website, bpinvestigativeagency.com. Uh, you can take a look at what, what I'm talking about. But anyhow, in their seller's assurances, uh, specifically there's box number five. And it seems to be not only Prime Star H1 Fund Trust, but as I started to delve into this, it, it just about every trust that you can think of <laughs> that's uh, from the past decade or two or whatever, um, they have similar documents uh, depending on where you look. And so you can go in. Uh, I started out, this one came from, um, I think it was Camden County, but you can go into just about any one of the counties, and it's sort of like panning for gold, and you can pull up their uh, recorder's information and start to type in names, and, you're, and what you're looking for is uh, these deeds and with, with some of these parties' names. And you'll start to, they'll start to pop up, and when you look at it, sure enough, you're going to find these uh, certifications. And that box five of the certification, again, um, going back to that, states, seller is not an individual, estate, or trust, and is not required to make an estimated gross income tax payment. Now, why is, uh, okay, that's significant, because one, it's saying it's, uh, it's not a trust, even though the seller is calling itself a trust. And oftentimes, many listeners or people out there have been foreclosed uh, probably in some other jurisdiction or state where the party as a plaintiff or whomever came in and claimed that we are a trust and uh, they declare where they're organized or where they're existing and so on and so forth. Um, then you have at the bottom the seller's declaration. Now here, the party who signs this document signs uh, under threat of imprisonment and under uh, uh, penalty of perjury, 
that the document that the information that they're providing is is obviously been verified and it's the truth and there's an additional box that needs to be checked if the document is signed by anybody acting as power of attorney now when i started going in i i I just started scratching the surface, and, and I've probably spent uh, so far maybe 10, 12 hours going through these databases, and what I'm seeing here is absolutely astounding. Not only am I seeing a vast majority of every well-known trust or parties using the names of these trusts uh, filing these uh, certifications saying they're not a trust, but most of them don't even... Uh, uh, certify that, it, it, well, first of all, they, they have to certify that they're signing it as attorney, in fact, and show that they recorded a power of attorney with that authority. They have to prove that authority. Now, most of these documents, they're concealing that. For, for They're not checkmarking that it was signed by a power of attorney, even though it is, and it states even on the documents. But, for example, uh, I looked at one on a WAMU trust that popped up, and it was filed in 2014 saying that the seller was not a trust, and it was Bank of America acting as trustee, which that's problematic because they stopped being a trustee in 2011. But the, the recorded power of attorney that actually was recorded with that document, the, the authority states right in the very first paragraph, uh, the authority derived from the trusts identified on Schedule A. <laughs> so this is the lunacy of it, is that uh, they're saying all of these are trusts, and here's how you get the authority, but when it comes time to uh, pay the tax bill or whatever, we're not a trust. Now, uh, I've emailed back and forth uh, to Neil on this a little bit or whatever, but you know he seems to feel, and I feel the same way, that, look, if you're swearing under oath that you're not a trust and you've taken the position in some jurisdiction to a judge or a court or somewhere that you are a trust, uh, you know, logically you can't have it both ways. <laughs> and I think there's a lot of useful information. If you're going to start doing a little research on some of these parties who may be in your chain of title or have foreclosed on you or are threatening to foreclose, a good place to start if you want to start digging is to go into New Jersey and start looking for these records because I think you're, uh, you're going to find not only these documents, but I'm going to tell you right now, I have found documents associated with these named entities that are taking complete and opposite positions, which is unusual um, to find all these discrepancies, but um, I'm finding that they're filing <coughs> and recording different uh, named trustees uh, that are out of the blue. I mean, it's crazy what you can find in there. And so um, going back to, you know, saying that this is just a tax evasion scheme or uh, a tax avoidance scheme, it's way more than that, I think, Charles. Um, what I'm seeing, and, and I, you know, I was reviewing a, a handbook that was put out by the European authorities talking about international money laundering and, and terrorist financing and um, talking to tax examiners of some of the signs and symptoms of what to look for in these types of transactions. What are, what are unusual uh, indicators of um, this type of fraud? And the checklist is astounding of what I'm seeing. And, and part of the checklist has, and I'll just read a few of them, <laughs> from, from what they're putting out as a warning and an indicator. Transactions or agreements without relevant supporting documents. Gee, I mean, does that sound surprising? Transactions <laughs> with offshore companies. Okay, we see that all the time. 
non-transparent, non-identifiable customers, creditors, or lenders. Absolutely, we see that. And it talks a little bit about layering schemes, that whole plausible deniability where you have transactions going from all these trust to trust to trust to trust in short periods of time and you can't identify anything. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, another one, transactions with business associates or customers that share a common address. How often do you see, uh, and I've seen in these documents that are recorded, P.O. boxes that all share multiple dozens and dozens of the same entity addresses? <coughs> Excuse me again, I'm sorry. Transactions identified at asset sales, but assets can't be substantiated. I mean, it goes on and on, but um, I think it's, it's much more sinister. Um, so anyway, that's a great resource to go look. And just for a minute, I want to touch on uh, kind of switching gears here a little bit. <coughs> the, uh, COVID, sure. uh, the COVID crisis, obviously, um, there's going to be a tsunami coming our way, not only with the existing foreclosure caseload that was still uh, quite busy, but now we're going to start seeing a lot more because of the forbearances being lifted. So all I really can say and warn and tell people about is to prepare it and get get ahead of this as best you can. Um, the one thing that you're going to want, want to make sure that you do is if you're having any communications with uh, so-called servicers, and I apologize for having to cough again, <coughs> um, <clears throat> document everything. Okay, you have to document even your, your phone calls. If I mean, they, they tend to say this is going to be recorded for quality assurance. Ask even if you're not in a two-way uh, consent state or whatever to, to record things, document things, take employee ID numbers, um, and keep really good records of everything that uh, you're told and uh, what they convey or say to you in those conversations. Um, I'd also say <clears throat> that uh, getting a hold of certified documents, in the, in, whether it's corporate filings or recorded records, um, anything that you're going to need that's in the public domain, so to speak, but that you're eventually going to need uh, as certified, start making those requests immediately. Because I'll tell you right now, I've got a, a case where I, I've been after a certified documents in California now for six months, and it's because of COVID, nothing's turning. Um, so you want to get a head start on, on getting your hands on that type of thing. Um, <clears throat> and really, discovery and prosecution is key and critical. And uh, it all boils down to really two critical areas that I see for discovery and that is the authority of the parties who are seeking and claiming uh, the rights to foreclose and the accounting. Um, I have a case right now where uh, the attorney did a real good job of getting early uh, discovery requests out specific to the accounting and the uh, financial side of things about showing the, re the account receivable on the books and records and everything related to the accounting of the loan. And sure enough, uh, the response came back with an objection to every single question as being unduly burdensome. So that's going to lead next to the compel. <clears throat> so there's so much that you can do to get out ahead. And I'll tell you, from my uh, desk, I'm going to be very, very busy. Um, I'm already seeing that starting to happen where uh, my turn times are going to be a little bit longer than usual. And so if you know and sense that these services are going to be needed, um, take pro proactive measures to start as soon as possible so that you, you're not trying to um, play catch-up or get behind the eight ball. Charles? Oh, yeah, that's, that's really good uh, intel and 
you know, advice about your own uh, practice and how backed up you you are in, in terms of, uh, you know, everything that's happening right now. I mean, the kind of intel and the kind of information that we're able to get, convey on this show, I think, is critical to fighting and, and, frankly, getting the right framing in at the beginning of cases and, you know, kind of moving directly into the well, the headwinds, we could call them headwinds right now, of the cor- of the coming foreclosure tsunami. Now, that sounds like a glib term. Uh, I'd like to say that uh, we're using the term in some kind of, uh, you know, media-driven way. Uh, alas, that's not the case. This is going to be uh, reality times five coming down the pike fairly, fairly shortly, I'd say. Within a few months, we're going to see a lot more than headwinds. And then the center of the storm, you know, which is right before the the sort of interim calm, particularly in uh, hurricanes and typhoons, and typhoons are basically hurricanes, just typecast that way in the eastern Pacific. Uh, nevertheless, I mean, that is to say the western Pacific, the eastern part of the globe. Nevertheless, it is all coming, you know, the, the the framework for this, just to give you an idea, I mean, there have been a number of articles written. One of them is on Neil's blog that he's referenced from an economist who's simply analyzing the data. And even without talking about the full mortgage, you know, delinquency posture, which already is really in default status. Again, without getting into every nook and cranny of it, or even the big picture, you know, in terms of of the moving parts for all the different types of loans out there, they're basically, uh, you know, 8 million plus loans under the AFETCH, you know, the Federal Housing Authority umbrella, you know, HUD, housing and urban development, they're all connected to this. The bottom line, these are essentially federally subsidized loans, typically for borrowers that maybe didn't qualify for A-type financing or they were in a position for whatever reason to take advantage of the, of the, uh, the, the, the FHA financing. Uh, you know, there's certain requirements, everything else, and a lot of people are able to do that, but it is specialized. So, you know, kind of data point one is you've got 8 million plus loans out there under the FHA umbrella. Uh, even the back of the envelope calculation will tell you that the analysis of those loans and their delinquency rates, it's up to 10% now. And I think a number of the listeners to this show will know that that 10% number is quite ominous. Uh, It's ominous because that's actually the high end of where the defaults were when the mortgage meltdown happened back in 2009. The default rate at that time was about, you know, nine and a half, anywhere from 85 to 9.5%, moving to 10. This is already over 10. And 
these haven't been declared official defaults in some cases. They're technically deficient delinquencies, but they're the 10% plus number reflects three or more months delinquent. And that analysis that was referenced in this recent article, which again is on Neil's blog, the data there goes through August. So here we are in uh, mid-late November. And so we're already almost a few months beyond that. The delinquency rates, there's no reason to believe that the delinquency rates aren't a lot higher. At that 10% number might be 12, 13% now. Uh, that the delinquencies of some large percentage of that number uh, maybe maybe as high as six months. So the moratorium could be renewed. This is often an issue in legislation of any kind, federal or state. Yes, that's a real possibility. If I were a homeowner, I, I would certainly not bank on that in any sense of the term. Looks like the moratorium is going to go away. Uh, whether there'll be a new program coming, you know, under whoever gets in power in early January, I think it's two, you know, January 20, uh, is the, uh, well, I'm not going to speculate on that. I think for now it's clear that under the present arrangement, which does not appear to be, something that is going to get serious legislation or serious uh, legislative or even executive action to address, the default rate is going to go through the roof and the moratorium, once it goes away, federal level, there are going to be state backups in some places. Uh, it's, it's kind of a patchwork in California. If you're a Northern California property owner, yeah, you may be able to have a moratorium cover you for some period, uh, kind of on a graduate basis coming into 2021. Southern California, you're already seeing signs that the moratorium is going to be essentially done away with, consistent with the federal disappearance. And so you are seeing January 2021 sale dates that look like they're going to go forward in California. And there's a similar uh, look on the unlawful detainer front. So that's all very concerning, frankly. And we're all going to need to address it in the coming year. Now, as to how we address this, uh, Neil, as always, uh, has broken out some of the essential fundamentals for these. You know, one way of framing it is to say you need to look at the facts of your particular situation as a homeowner. Now, some of our listeners, they have rental properties, so their homeowner situation is going to be different than that which exists related to, for instance, the Homeowner Bill of Rights. And by the way, speaking of the Homeowner Bill of Rights in California, you know, that's going to continue in some capacity. Uh, we'll have to have another show on that separately. Um, that will still be in play to some extent. You know, kind of the number two big picture thing that you need to do to address 
what's coming and any foreclosure situation that you have, uh, you need to have, you know, the right pleading, the right motion practice for what you're doing. So you need to plead the proper defense and offense, which goes into point four, motion practice. So you should look at those two together. And three, as we talk about often on the show, discovery is going to be, especially at today's date, an essential tool uh, in these cases. So one way of framing this is first principles and Neil's framing, which I think is still the best, most fundamental framing out there, is if you are in a judicial state, you need to put in a level of denial that will essentially put at issue that the the organization suing you, whoever they are, does not have the conditions precedent to justify going against you. And you need to put those at, at issue and you need to use early discovery when you are in a judicial foreclosure state to get a stream of responses which you can put into early pleadings. Now, in a non-judicial foreclosure state, early discovery may or may not be justified. It's a, it's a more complicated issue because until you get past a mirror, your case won't be at issue. Absolutely, in a judicial foreclosure state, uh, what you need to do is challenge the the, the named claimant, and you can even use that language. Uh, of course, they're going to be a plaintiff when they're judicially suing you, but they're basically claiming a right to collect, and you your response, which, of course, you'll have to have the right framing and you'll have to have the right kind of intel put into your case at the beginning, and you'll, you'll need some kind of loan audit, official or otherwise, confirm that you have the right status but if it's a classic securitized loan that we've talked about on this show many times, you're going to have a fictional claim and it's it's going to be based on an inability to establish ownership of the loan account, not just the note and the mortgage or deed of trust, depending on what type of state you're in. So, Bill was essentially referring to loan accounts when he's talking about the auditing situation. That's a big deal. And that's the framing that you want on a judicial foreclosure uh, defense. Non-judicially, it's going to be similar. You need to attack the loan accounts and you need to attack the paper note and the deed of trust. And you go with uh, a framing that the claimant doesn't have the right to collect for the simple reason that they can't show that you uniquely owe on the underlying debt, they can't even show that there's an underlying debt. And you challenge the loan and the loan account, and you challenge that they have a real loss if they don't get paid from you as the borrower, the ostensible borrower. And you do that with a simple analysis that uh, 
there isn't a loan to collect on. And that sounds somewhat woo-woo, and we've talked about this on the show before, and has certainly talked about it, um, all for an expanded topic on another day. But that's, that's part of the framing that's needed. And, uh, Bill, I appreciate you being on the show today, and happy Thanksgiving. And Neil will be back December 3rd, and happy Thanksgiving to all our listeners. You as well, Charles. Thank you. The opinions expressed on The Neil Garfield Show are those of its hosts and should not be ascribed to any other persons or entities. For more information about Neil, the blog, or upcoming seminars, please visit livinglies.me. Give us a call at 954-451-1230 or send an email to n-e-i-l-f-g-a-r-f-i-e-l-d at hotmail.com. Thank you for listening to The Neil Garfield Show. If the information has helped you, consider making a donation by visiting livinglies.me.